By 2030, we need to achieve at least a 45% reduction in the emissions. The Biden administration says it's doable, with the biggest climate law ever passed now a year old. For Sunday, August 27th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. In today's show, a personal look at the meaning of K-pop. Talking with these different people and exploring these histories, it's helped me reconcile the two halves of my identity, the Korean and the American, and see where I fit. We'll also preview the U.S. Open, which gets underway in Queens, New York tomorrow. And in this week's Enlighten Me, reading and probing novels as if they were religious texts. We started sort of a Bible study with Jane Eyre. It's different from a book club in that you're trying to learn from the book, not about the book. All those stories coming up after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Authorities in Florida say the gunman who shot and killed three black people at a Dollar General store in Jacksonville yesterday had no criminal record or history. Sheriff T.K. Waters says 21-year-old Ryan Palmetter also bought his weapons, a handgun and an AR-15-style rifle, legally. There was nothing that we could have done to stop him from owning a, a firearm, a, a rifle, or a handgun. There was no red flags. Water says the gunman first tried to enter a historically black college near the store, but was turned away by a security guard. The sheriff says Palmetto didn't shoot any of the white people in the store and that his writings were troubling. He was just completely irrational, um, but with his irrational, with his irrational thoughts, he knew what he was doing. He had 100%. He was 100% lucid. He knew what he was doing. This was one of several shootings this weekend, including one near a parade in Massachusetts and one at a high school football game in Oklahoma. Russian authorities are confirming that Wagner mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin died in a plane crash last week. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow the positive identification comes four days after a plane believed to be carrying Prigozhin crashed to the northwest of the Russian capital. In a statement, Russia's investigative committee said molecular genetic expertise showed all 10 people on board matched the existing flight manifest, meaning Evgeny Prigozhin and other high-ranking Wagner commanders perished in the crash. The group's business jet plunged to the earth a little over 30 minutes into a flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg on Wednesday with Prigozhin listed among passengers. A state investigation into the cause of the incident is ongoing. Prigozhin's death comes two months after he led a failed mutiny against Russia's military leadership that ended with a murky amnesty deal. The Kremlin has dismissed Western allegations that President Putin may have ordered Prigozhin's assassination as absolute lies. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The tropical storm Idalia is expected to track north through the Gulf of Mexico in the coming days and hit Florida by midweek. The storm so far has maximum sustained winds of 40 miles an hour. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports meteorologists say the storm could intensify into a hurricane. Forecasters are warning residents in Florida and the Panhandle to prepare for severe weather starting Tuesday. The storm is expected to move across the Gulf of Mexico in the coming days, and the warm water there could cause Adalia to intensify from a tropical storm into a hurricane. Governor Ron DeSantis has declared a state of emergency for 33 Florida counties, and authorities there are already preparing storm response resources. While Florida may see the brunt of the storm, forecasters also say Georgia and the Carolinas could expect to see at least heavy rain midweek and beyond. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says infighting among city councilors is a distraction from pressing issues. She was a guest this morning on WCVB's On the Record. No one is perfect. All of us come to these roles understanding that there's very high standards and that we also are real human beings that have other challenges in our lives. But there has to be a way to come together with your colleagues, focus on the work that residents need, and get things done. The council has been split over issues, including how to deal with members of the council facing ethics violations and criminal charges. Boston police have made two more arrests related to the gunfire that injured eight people yesterday. That brings the number of those arrested to four. At least two suspects are scheduled to be arraigned tomorrow in Dorchester. Police say the shooting was not related to the nearby Caribbean Festival. A Boston business is raising funds to support recovery efforts in Hawaii following the wildfires. Maymay Dumplings will donate proceeds from the sales of a new dessert, to the Maui Strong Fund. Operations Manager Laura Dibble has family on the island and came up with the idea. And she hopes other local businesses will follow suit. We'd like to invite other businesses to run similar promotions and support Maui. So it, it would be good to know that our customers are behind us in this effort. Search and recovery efforts continue on the island where hundreds of people remain missing. Well, the Dodgers uh, won the series with the Red Sox this afternoon, taking two out of three. Today's final at Fenway Park was 7-4. to four. Variably cloudy skies the rest of the afternoon. Maybe a slight chance of a scattered shower or thunderstorm. Temps holding in the low 70s. Lows near 60 overnight and then mostly sunny tomorrow. Temps again in the low 70s. Looking to Tuesday, mostly cloudy, a chance of showers and mid-70s. It's 73 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The broadest law ever aimed at lowering carbon emissions in the U.S. has been in place for a year now, and it couldn't have come at a more critical time. Last month was hotter than any other month in recorded history. And all summer, the world has seen a cascade of climate emergencies. Violent storms in this summer packed with extreme weather and excessive heat. Hundreds are dead or still missing from wildfires in Hawaii, and much of the U.S. suffered under extreme heat this summer. Devastation and heartbreak as you saw parts of historic Lahaina town destroyed. Hurricane season is only just beginning, but a tropical storm has already hit Los Angeles, of all places. The first tropical storm to move into Southern California in more than 25 years. All summer, we've talked about this as a preview of what living with climate change could be like. President Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, gave a speech in Scotland last week all about it. Around the world, people are moving because they can't grow food, because they are flooded, because they can't live and work in the extreme heat, because the air that they are forced to breathe is clogged with pollution greenhouse gas pollution that kills someone prematurely every five seconds around the world. For our Sunday cover story, we talked to John Kerry about the administration's efforts to curb climate change, and we'll also get a reality check about whether it will be enough to meet their ambitious goals. 
First, Kerry is preparing for the next major climate summit, which will be in Dubai, and he joins us now to talk about it. Secretary Kerry, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. Let's just pick up with the global context here. Hottest recorded months ever, extreme weather all around the globe. You've got the wildfires in Hawaii. We are talking about ocean temperatures off Florida as hot as a hot tub. So I've got to start by asking whether, in a sense, it is already too late for these negotiations you have been so focused on. Well, it can't be too late. We can't allow it to be too late. I mean, this is a matter of it's an existential issue, and it would be the height of your responsibility uh, not to do everything possible that we can to avoid the damage that the scientists are telling will come with each increasing half a degree or degree of uh, warming, uh, a point tenths of, of a degree. Yeah. So the conversation for so long that you have been such a big part of is is keeping the increase under 1.5 degrees Celsius. That was that was the conversation at Paris going forward. It's framed so many conversations. Is that goal too late to accomplish at this point in time? We don't know, but the evidence is very clear that uh, we probably are going to surpass it. But then many scientists argue that it's that you're able to claw back, that you could come back from the overshoot of it. Uh, we don't know precisely, but mm-hmm. but just the mere speculation that that is a real possibility uh, ought to drive us to take much greater steps to be able to do everything we can do in order to limit, you know, to to respond to the crisis. The line of the speech that has gotten the most attention. I want to talk about it. You said now is the time for all of us to join together and take a more critical step. There should be no more permitting of any new unabated coal-fired power anywhere in the world period. I've got several questions about that. Starting here in the U.S., you, you, you talked about the you know 90% uh, renewable energy coming online. The, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act certainly does play a huge role in speeding up that transition. But I'm wondering, does it undercut your call for a big shift like that when at the same time the administration is approving huge new oil drilling projects like Willow? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe it undercuts it. I mean, it may undercut it in some people's minds, but does it in reality? No. And the reason is that we are full square in this transition. But at the same time, we have to keep our economy moving. And, and you have to be able to supply the demand that American citizens and others around the world are exercising in order to be able to go to work and get to the hospital and do the things we do to daily live. But you, the key here is to stay on the curve, stay on the downward trend that gets us to the goal. It doesn't all have to happen by by the cop in December. It doesn't all have to happen by next year. Mm-hmm. It has to happen that by 2030, 2030, seven years from now, we need to achieve at least a 45% reduction in the emissions. And then going on from 2030 to 2050, we need to hit the net zero target and I assure you, remarkable transformations are coming online uh, through American ingenuity and global ingenuity and innovation uh, and entrepreneurial efforts. So I'm very excited about what is happening right now. And I really think we're at the beginning of a turning point. Are we where we need to be on the target? Not yet. But I believe we can get there. You recently uh, went to China to resume conversations on climate that had hit a snag. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to watch the Republican presidential debate a couple of days ago, but 
Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley was one of the few candidates who seemed to actually take climate change seriously. She said it is real. It's a serious concern. But her answer was something we've heard a lot before from from Republican contenders of what the U.S. does doesn't really matter unless China and India are doing the same thing. You're talking about phasing out coal-fired power plants. Uh, I just saw a report that said China is still permitting two new coal-fired plants a week. How do you get China on the same page when it comes to coal? Well, it is absolutely essential that China uh, sign up and, and, and undertake major changes to their coal policy. And it is accurate that uh, we can't get where we need to go. No one in the world can if other countries aren't also doing this. But it is not accurate to say we can't do anything or shouldn't do anything because someone else isn't. Now, in, in, in the case of China, they've got to change that coal policy, and hopefully they will because it's in their interest. And they'll do it not because we're saying they have to do it. That's not going to work. They'll do it because they understand that that's their contribution to the rest of the world as well as to their own citizens. In 2021, in Glasgow, you came on All Things Considered to talk about the agreement you had struck with your Chinese counterpart at the at the COP then. Um, the, day, the day the agreement came in place, you came on to talk about this. It was an agreement to speed up greenhouse gas reduction efforts between the U.S. and China. You really talked it up as something that was promising. A couple years later, has China kept its end of that agreement? Well, the problem with what happened uh, in terms of our ability to be able to continue, we were working. We had a working group. We announced that we would create that at that time, but we weren't able to get it completed because the visit to to Taiwan wound up uh, with a disruption in our ability to even talk. The Chinese suspended as a result of the Taiwan visit, and we had about a year go by before we were able to renew that. I just renewed our conversations about a month ago or so. Uh, uh, and and now we are trying to come back together to have these discussions. That's Secretary John Kerry, who is President Biden's Clive and Envoy. Thanks so much for talking All Things Considered. Great to be with you. Thank you. Now, if the Biden administration is going to succeed at lowering the country's carbon footprint, the Inflation Reduction Act will have to succeed. The sweeping law went into effect a year ago. Rebecca Lieber covers climate for Vox. I asked her whether the legislation will be effective and if the public even knows about it. This is probably going to be a huge problem for the Biden administration in implementing the law because it relies so heavily on incentives that it matters if people know about them. So um, just the polling that's come out so far on the IRA Very few Americans have even heard of the law. They have little awareness what it's doing around climate, let alone the specific incentives that can be quite complex of how to reap these tax credits and eventually rebates to get money off at purchase for things like a heat pump or a car. Another piece here will be how states implement their programs because states have a really important role to play in communicating to consumers how things like rebates will work. So we've yet to see any of this roll out. This will come probably at the beginning of 2024. And that will be the really big test for whether consumers are going to take up the IRA on all of these incentives. Let's talk about the carbon reduction side of this, though, because we are coming at a time where we saw the hottest month ever. We saw all sorts of extreme weather this summer that's only going to get worse. Do the carbon reductions that this law is trying to get to 
happen at a fast enough pace that is me- needed for the United States' big picture goals and for the the broader world goals of, of keeping temperatures down? Most projections out there say that it will reduce emissions about 40 percent by 2030, which isn't quite all the way that we need to go to get to Biden's goal of reducing emissions by half by that point. So there are some ways, though, that the IRA might speed along this transition. One is uh, these big block grants to states and local groups to reduce pollution in their communities and to help electrify their communities. So these are the kinds of projects that can actually help in terms of air pollution and water quality, but can also benefit by transitioning from fossil fuels at the local level. Another way that the law could have a really big impact in the shorter term on climate change is what it does around methane emissions. Because methane is a short acting pollutant, it warms the atmosphere a lot faster than carbon dioxide, and it's our second biggest problem when it comes to climate change. Mm -hmm. The law imposes a price on methane, so oil and gas producers basically have to start reducing their methane emissions, and that can have a big impact if this part of the law is taken seriously and implemented well in the next few years, because this is something we need to tackle now if we have any chance of containing warming to the global targets under 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's Rebecca Libra, a senior reporter at Fox who covers climate change. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. And uh, coming up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. Sports, the Red Sox dropped the second of three games in a series with the Dodgers at Fenway Park this afternoon. The final score was L.A. 7 and the Sox 4. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. Studies show CO2 levels rising, and that means poison ivy growing faster and more toxic. Learn about the science and what clinicians and landscapers are seeing on the ground. Listen tomorrow morning to 90.9 WBUR as we kick off a week of beyond normal climate coverage. Right now in Boston, 73 degrees. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Authorities in Jacksonville, Florida, say the white gunman who killed three black people at a store yesterday legally purchased his handgun and AR-15-style rifle. And they say the 21-year-old had no criminal record or history. Three U.S. military personnel were killed. Twenty others were injured after their helicopter crashed on an island off the coast of northern Australia. The cause of the crash is under investigation. And four astronauts from different countries arrived at the International Space Station today. They'll spend six months there, replacing the astronauts on board the station who've already been there since March. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News from Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at SmartMouth.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. When Vivian Yoon was growing up in L.A.'s Koreatown during the 1990s and 2000s, she was kind of ashamed of the fact that she was such a huge K-pop fan. At the time, K-pop was not the global music sensation and multi-billion dollar industry that it is today. And even though Yoon knew all of the words to her favorite songs, she wanted to appear more interested in American culture. My dad was very, I mean, he was very American, right? Like, he grew up in the States. He waved lighters at Pink Floyd concerts and played college football and was in the U.S. Army. And so I think that's sort of where a lot of this stemmed from, right? My, my desire to, to really be seen as American, as opposed to Korean or Korean-American. Since then, Vivian Yoon has embraced her love of Korean popular music, and she's out with a new podcast from LAS Studios called K-Pop Dreaming. The podcast traces the music's rise to the international stage and also how Yoon's own family history and identity weave into that. Vivian Yoon spoke to my co-host Elsa Chang, and they began by talking about a song from 25 years ago, one that Yoon cannot stop singing even today. It's called One Time by the group, One Time. that tapped into you more deeply? Like, was it was it the hip-hop sound they brought? The fact that two of their members were Korean-American? Talk about what it was. It's really hard to distill and define, like, what makes a group cool. Mm-hmm. But for me and my friends growing up in K-Town, we just knew that one time was cool. They just had an it factor that some of the other K-pop groups didn't have, you know? Um, they weren't going for, like, a cute, wholesome, poppy image. And there was something that felt very familiar Growing up in L.A., like, hip-hop is such a big aspect of, like, the culture, right? I went to L.A. High, and you really could not escape hip-hop. There was something about one time that felt like home because of that connection to hip-hop and, you know, American culture. And do you think part of feeling at home was seeing Korean-Americans in a K-pop band? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I'm sure it's like this for other, like, diasporic communities, too, but... For Korean-Americans, I feel like a lot of us growing up were always aware of other Korean-Americans doing really cool things, you know, influencing pop culture or entertainment or sports or whatever. And so growing up, like, we all knew that Tony Ahn from H.O.T. was Korean-American and Brian Ju from Flight of the Sky and June Park from G.O.D. Like, the list goes on. And there's just something really, really special or really exciting to identify with Korean-American members in your favorite K-pop groups. And One Time was, like, totally a good example of that. 
And, you know, despite being a fan of K-pop in those early days, you talk about how there were certain elements of K-pop that you still didn't quite connect with. Can you can you talk about that piece of it? You know, growing up K-pop, it was very much you were into boy bands and girl groups, right? Like there was no middle ground. And for me, a lot of the Korean girls that I grew up with, they were really into the girl groups. Um, and I just, I just couldn't relate to that um, because I was a pretty big tomboy growing up. And I'd always felt like an outsider when it came to girl culture and girl code and girl speak. And I think K-pop girl groups just represented you know, another facet of of the ways that I didn't belong in um, feminine circles. So that was another, like, complicated aspect of my relationship to K-pop growing up. Well, there's no doubt now that K-pop has become this immense global phenomenon. You talk about a distinct moment when there was no doubt K-pop had blown up internationally. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm doing the dance right now. Can you describe (laughs) what it was like to watch this song catch on fire in America in 2012? To, like, watch everyone doing the invisible horse dance, reenacting the video. And why it was kind of funny to you that this song, out of all the songs, was the song that blew up. Honestly, it was so confusing. Like, it was such a weird time. Because up until that point, like, I had never heard non-Koreans really talk about K-pop or just even be aware that the music existed and all of a sudden you have people like oppa and gangnam like those are very very Korean words and so to see like all these you know average American people suddenly singing it and doing the dance um, it was very very surprising and shocking and confusing was it kind of annoying? I personally wasn't annoyed by it, but, you know, in the podcast, one of my friends, Randy, who, you know, I've known since middle school, he sort of had this experience where people were coming up to him and just, you know, they just started doing the dance at him. Size, um, Oppa Gangnam style, when yeah. that came yeah. out and we started listening yeah, for to sure. hearing it on American radio, I was like, what is going on, you know? And I actually, yeah. I actually, what is that? That was weird. And at the time, I wasn't yeah. super hyped about that either because people would, random people would come up to you, and, oh, you're Korean, oh, Oppa Kingdom style, and do that dance. I, know. I just, I was like, why are you doing that, dude? Like, <laughs> it's so true. I was so yeah. annoyed by it. Yeah. yeah. It's mixed feelings. You're proud of it, but at the same time, you're like, can you not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly the feeling. Can you not? Yes. You know, it was really complicated, but that song was really, really surprising, too, because it was so culturally specific, I think. You know, it's all satire and parody about this neighborhood in Seoul called Gangnam. And he's really parodying the lifestyles of, like, the obscenely wealthy people who live there. So it was also really surprising just because of how specific the song's content was. This is probably a good time to step back and talk about what is K-pop anyway? Like, if you were to describe the sound of K-pop today, what are the elements of that sound? You know, we talk to a lot of different people, K-pop experts and reporters and academics, and that seems to be the million-dollar question of what is K-pop? Because it really is. um, I think it used to be that the K in K-pop stood for Korean, but now, you know, We're currently in the fourth generation of K-pop, and now you're seeing, like, this really, really clear um, 
this really clear intention on the part of these like management and entertainment labels and companies to create like international facing groups. So you will have groups with members who are not Korean and that is totally on purpose and things like that. So that's actually a really difficult question Mm. to answer. (laughs) Well, you talk about like this specific two-beat rhythm, bongchak, which you point out is from an older genre of Korean music. Tell us like how you hear that bong in a lot of K-pop too. Yeah. So the thing that a lot of K-pop producers say that sets Korean pop music apart is bongjak, um, or bong, or the bong factor, bong feel. Mm-hmm. That element really comes from this century-old genre of Korean music called trot. One person describes bong as coming from the Korean blues, essentially, right? And it's rooted in, like, a century of hardship and suffering um, that the Korean people endured throughout history. So like you had the Japanese occupation, then you had the Korean War, and then you had like military dictators coming in in the 80s. And so Korea has had this really tumultuous uh, and sort of tragic history. And that's really where this element comes from, bong or bongjak, that gives K-pop its distinct flavor. So like the H.O.T. song Candy, which sounds super upbeat and poppy, the first line, like the lyrics are literally like, I was thinking about breaking up with you the other day. Dang! Those are the kinds of things that you'll see a lot in Korean lyrics. And it's this juxtaposition of these different kinds of ideas of like happy and sad, uplifting, joyful, grieving, like all these different things are mixed together. And I think it's a really good example of Korean culture and, you know, Korean history and Koreans in general. Like I feel like, you know, we are a very resilient people when you look at our history and we're South Korea's today specifically. There's this concept in Korean called Han, and it really is this feeling of like grief and sorrow and resentment and all these like difficult feelings and emotions. But on the other hand, you know, on the flip side of that same coin, you have something called Hung, and it represents like joy and resilience and passion. And it really is the combination and synthesis of those two things that I feel is captured in Bong and in K-pop. I mean, after listening to you explain that, it made me hear K-pop differently. And I'm curious, how much has making this podcast helped you think differently about your own relationship to Korean culture and your own heritage? That was the biggest surprise for me. I did not expect to come out of this as a changed person. Mm. But I can really say there's something so powerful about knowing the history of your people and your community and where you come from and seeing the forces that have shaped your identity. Knowing your history can lead to a certain kind of acceptance. And for me, I didn't realize I was missing that in my own life. And I didn't realize like how much of those identity issues I struggled with growing up were still impacting me until 
I started diving into the subject of this podcast and, you know, really talking with these different people and exploring these histories, it's helped me reconcile the two halves of my identity, the Korean and the American, and see where I fit, you know, as a second generation Korean American person from Los Angeles. Mm. So it's, it's been really, really powerful and, and surprisingly so. I'm so glad to hear that. So what would you say to someone who's never listened to K-pop? What would be your pitch to them about delving into this genre of music? I would say, okay, so if we're talking like 2023, my recommendation, I would just say listen to New Jeans. They're like the biggest K-pop group right now. And we actually got to chat with one of the producers who created like all of their hit songs, like Ditto, OMG. It's infectious. There is a reason that New Jeans is taking over TikTok at the moment. And it's because their songs are just so catchy. And if you listen to the music, you'll get the hype. You'll get the hype. Vivian Yoon's new podcast is called K-Pop Dreaming, and she spoke to my co-host Elsa Chang. K-Pop Dreaming is produced by LAS Studios, and all eight episodes are out now. All Things Considered, from NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It's time for Grand Slam Tennis. One of the biggest tournaments of the year gets underway in Queens tomorrow, the U.S. Open. On the midside, all eyes are on Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz, the top two players in the world who have been dueling all season long. And on the women's side, the most dominant player on the scene right now, Iga Sviantek, will look to defend her U.S. Open title. We've got John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated on the line to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. So what are the big plots in tennis this season, and where does the U.S. Open fit in on unsettling them? It's That's great because this is the fourth major. This is the last one. So in a sense, this this will settle a lot of these storylines. On uh, the men's side, is, as you say, Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz are this new dynamic rivalry, albeit one with uh, two players 16 years apart in age, but one or the other has won 
each of the last five majors. Alcaraz yeah. beat Djokovic in this spellbinding Wimbledon match, and Djokovic got revenge a few weeks ago. I mean, it's really um, this has really become a very textured rivalry, and it's it's a big staircase down to the next level. So everyone is anticipating a, a Djokovic Alcaraz final, and then on the women's side, it's a bit wider open, as you say, Iga Svantec, number one defending champion, but. She hasn't been playing great tennis lately. And meanwhile, Coco Goff, the 19-year-old American, has very much been a, a player in ascent. So um, the, the women's draw, I think, is more open as it usually is, but a lot of intrigue on both sides. I feel like tennis always reaches peak popularity when you've got those rivalries, those two players that you think about and nobody else is in the picture. I mean, clearly that's happening on the men's side this season. Is golf at that point where it could be her? Is that a little bit more of a jump ball? I think it's a bit more of a jump ball. And I think, you know, she has, she should played Iga Svantec a number of times and had not won. I think she was, she was 0 for 8 until she finally beat her in Cincinnati. So maybe that will emerge as a rivalry. I think, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I think rivalries in individual sports are great for the fans, but I think the dirty secret is they also elevate the athletes. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows if Novak Djokovic is even playing if this new challenge hasn't arisen to motivate him so yeah. I, I think there's sort of a qualitative benefit to rivalry too anybody else we should be thinking about as we uh, as we turn our tv sets toward the u.s open tomorrow yeah john isner a, a longtime american stalwart who looks like a basketball player but is a, a tennis player is playing what might be his last match venus williams 43 years old is, is still playing but it, it really is, um, I, I think, the big story, at least on the men's side, is this. Everybody wants to see the Alcaraz-Djokovic final. It would be a bit of a letdown if that didn't happen. <laughs> Sorry to everybody else in the tournament, but that's what we <laughs> exactly. want. Like, let, let's broaden things out a little bit. As a backdrop to all of this, one of the prevailing storylines in all of sports this year has been Saudi Arabia's push to become a global player, spending billions luring big leagues and names, and what critics say is a pretty transparent effort to improve its global image. I understand it's now tennis's turn to deal with this controversy. What's going on? Yeah, the, the men just announced that they will be having a, a year-end event for, for young ascending players in, in Jeddah. And now the women this week will vote on whether to hold their year-end championships there. What's interesting about the women is they left China because of these, these ethical concerns uh, two years ago. The irony would not be lost if they left China only to end up in Riyadh. But as, as you say... Uh, the Saudi investment across all sports has been considerable. There's a lot of money in the balance, and it'll be really interesting to see what the women decide to do. All right. Well, we'll see how that goes. That's John Wertheim, the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm John Carpilio. So glad you're with us. Coming up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour and Braiding Sweetgrass, a lesson in extreme heat. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture this summer. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. 
Clear skies, lows near 60 overnight, mostly sunny, low 70s tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Russia is confirming that former Wagner mercenary head Yevgeny Prigozhin was on the plane that crashed in Moscow last week, leaving no survivors. Officials say genetic testing showed he was among the 10 bodies recovered. Former Tennessee Congressman and Governor Don Sunquist died today at the age of 87. As governor, he created the state's Department of Children's Services and worked to toughen prison sentences. And Tropical Storm Idalia has formed and is expected to become a hurricane as it heads for Florida. Governor Roy, uh, Ron DeSantis has declared a state of emergency for 33 counties on the Gulf Coast ahead of the storm. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News from Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and I am joined again by Rachel Martin for another conversation in her Enlighten Me series. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Scott. So last week, we aired the first part of my interview with this woman named Vanessa Zoltan, who's an author, and she's also an atheist chaplain. You remember this? I I listened as a listener because I was off last week, and I loved it. It was so interesting. One of the things I really thought a lot about was how she talked about how experiences in the Holocaust have really framed her family's theology and core thinking. Right. I mean— All four of her grandparents survived the Holocaust, right? They survived the concentration camp at Auschwitz. That would obviously affect how she sees the world. But it really did affect her her conceptions of God, a higher power, religion at all. Mm -hmm. She is still culturally Jewish, but she's also a devout atheist, Mm -hmm. if you can be such a thing. She has, though, this very rich spiritual life that is not based on any religious text. Instead, she extracts sacred meaning from books, from literature. She's got a whole podcast about this that I've actually listened to, yeah. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And that, and that series of books in particular, I get where she's coming from. I'm at like the outer band of an age of these were incredibly formative books. As they came out, I will admit I waited in a few lines for them at midnight. <laughs> but like, I know so many people who who view these books and thought about these books as they formed their core values. And that's really what religious texts are all about. Yeah, totally. And she is she's aware, as you'll hear, she doesn't want to put them on equal playing fields. Right. Mm -hmm. She understands a sacred text and a religious context is different than a piece of secular literature. But she really reads these books in that manner and treats them with that kind of reverence. And the memoir that she wrote, it's called Praying with Jane Eyre. In that, she explores how she treats this particular book that she started reading as a child, Jane Eyre, as a sacred text in and of itself. And I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, I have to give you a little bit of context. This you know, spiritual practice of hers began when she was a student at Harvard Divinity School. She was training to be a hospital chaplain, actually. And a professor there encouraged her to test out this whole idea of reading popular books as sacred texts. 
we started sort of a Bible study with Jane Eyre. We got together every week. And it's different from a book club in that you're trying to learn from the book, not about the book. Hmm. And you are like actively asking the book questions about your own life, right? Just like you would with Torah, right? Like what does the creation story tell us about climate change today? What does you know, Jane's relationship with her aunt tell us about toxic relationships today in my life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just turns out, you know, from there, a friend of mine said, you should actually do this with Harry Potter. More people like Harry Potter. And so we <laughs> did that. And he was right. More people do like Harry Potter than Jane Eyre. Um, and from that, we just met people all over the world who – are like, oh, I reread this Harry Potter book every year on the anniversary of my mother's death. Oh, this is, you know, a quote that I have tattooed on me because it reminds me, you know, that I'm not alone. What, you know, people, people are already treating secular texts as sacred. Um, and it's been I, in really creative and beautiful and radical ways. What did it feel like those first few gatherings? Because you did this first with Jane Eyre or was it first with Harry Potter? Yeah. No, 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 no. It was first with Jane Eyre. Yeah. It was first with Jane Eyre. Oh, it was magical. It was magical. It was terrifying because I was like, I don't know how to do this. You know, just imposter syndrome on uh, sort of running a Bible study. But it was amazing. It was four women who I'd never met before, and they were all so game to jump in on what Simone Bay calls experimental certainty, right? It was like we were playing. I was like, well, let's just pretend while we're together that this is a sacred book. We're just going to pretend it's sacred and that nothing yeah. in it here is an accident. But that's a really interesting word. Why did you have to pretend? Couldn't you just say that it was sacred? I mean – uh, yes, but there are like traditional ideas of what a sacred text is, right? And that there's like a body of priests that sort of decide it and right and I guess, but isn't this the whole rub? Like what is sacred? Yeah. Isn't it just because we decide to make something sacred and hold it in that way and with that reverence and that we create we imbue it with meaning? Yeah. I think I only knew that later. I like, mm. I don't want to insult anyone. I admire religious people and yeah. like not in a patronizing way. Like I genuinely admire a lot of religious people. Um, and so I take seriously their commitments to their sacred texts yeah. and yeah. the the historic value of that. And, um, and it'd be weird to be like, you've got the Bible and I've got Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Right. Yeah. And like, there's just, you know, like more sacrifices have been made protecting the Bible. You know, it's just, yeah. it's different. Yeah. Um, But on a personal level, it's not different, right? Like, I don't think I love Jane Eyre less than a devout person loves the Bible. Hmm. So you found your way over your imposter syndrome. In I those mean, groups. oh no, or not? I ignore <laughs> it. <laughs> but you were able to have a plan. You read together. Yes. You did you pray together in those reading groups? We tried. The closest that we've gotten to really praying together is that we bless characters, ah. um, and we bless characters as a way to really bless ourselves or someone in our life who we're thinking about. Yeah. So um, that and like that, I think is like the most like truly religious um, that we get. But I, yeah, prayer is still something that I, I struggle with. 
why do you feel compelled to do it at all? I mean, why, when you say you struggle with it, you're an atheist, why do you even feel like you need to know how to pray? It just feels like the humblest thing that a person can do. Ah. And I want, I want to be that humble. I'm just not yet, <laughs> but I would like to be so humble that I like, even though I don't believe in God, I just believe that things are out of my control and I want to name them. May I ask what it sounds like when you bless a character? Yeah. Um, so let me, let me, I mean, I'll, like, can I'll you conjure bless one? Miss Temple. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like if I were to bless Miss Temple today, you know, I would, I would, I would bless her ability to hear not the words that people are saying, but their concerns underneath their words. Um, Jane gets really mad. And rather than hearing Jane's anger, she hears Jane's fear mm. that is under her anger. And that is a capacity that I want to grow in myself. I often just hear the words people are saying and don't reach for what they're saying underneath. And so I want to bless her skill and dexterity in that and pay attention to that so that I can work on that in my own life. That is um, really beautiful and has a lot more meaning than I pulled from that section, just reading it from <laughs> your book. So uh, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get how you could you could find those nuggets in this story. And really, the sacred reading practices, like these two that we do the most, Lectio Divina and Pardes, they're like developed practices from, from medieval monks and rabbis that are all about like getting you deeper and deeper into a text and paying closer and closer attention, even just to one word. Huh. Um, and these are, these are practices that Bible study groups use. We've just adapted them for secular uses. And it's just... It has doing them weekly for almost 10 years now has changed my brain chemistry. How? You know, Lectio Divina, you start by reading the text literally, and then you think allegorically, what other stories does it remind you of? And then you think about yourself and what it reminds you of in your own life. And then you think about what it makes you feel called to mm. and do differently. And so I will read a sentence that that sparkles up at me. Um, like I, I'm currently obsessed with Emily Dickinson, and so right, I am nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? And I'll, you know, and I'll, I'll immediately be like, oh God, what else does that remind me of? You know, what, what, what does nobody mean to people? I'm thinking, you know, thinking about everybody in this world who feels isolated. We know that there's an epidemic of isolation and loneliness in this country, especially for adolescents, right? And so I start thinking about that, and then I also immediately start thinking about moments like that in my own life and therefore treating my life and my memories as sacred in conversation with Emily Dickinson and then you know wonder what that should make me feel called to and does that mean I should text my stepdaughter just telling her I love her for no reason mm. right and like a poem can very quickly just go through my head into action um it, it has like really changed the way that I read.
even you admit that Jane Eyre isn't perfect as a piece of either sacred text or something to hold in this way because it falls short for you in some ways. Can you talk about that and that feeling of like, oh, dang it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, dang it. This man who I've been in love with (laughs) since I was 14 sure did lock his wife up in an attic. He sure did. We're talking about Bertha, the character of Bertha, and you spend a lot of time in your memoir talking about how that character, and she's just not in the story for very long. And, nope. and you realize what what what's up with with that? And you know, you read more closely, and Bertha's definitely coded as as at least partially black Caribbean. We, you know that she's been sent from the Caribbean to be married to Rochester. And so just, you know, learning to decode the way that things were written in the 1840s, you know, there are things that we wouldn't necessarily pick up on, know to pick up on today. And so just having studied the book more closely, I was like, oh, Bertha's black. And this white man marries her for her money and then locks her in an attic and tells everyone she's crazy. Like, that's sure convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I I don't think Bronte – look, Bronte was one woman. You know, she was one – teeny tiny woman. She was not perfect and her theology was not perfect. Um, And I do think that she ends up sacrificing Bertha um, as a a plot device and as a totem of baggage. And um, does that diminish your perception of the book as sacred? No. I love that it's messy in such an obvious way. Hmm. It's not pernicious. It's not sneaky about how messed up it is, you know? I love Pride and Prejudice, but it's so good that you can let some of the messed up stuff sort of slip by. Whereas Jane Eyre, it's, you know, it's like the Bible in this way. It's messed up in a really obvious way that you have to deal with. I mean, so is America. So so is my family, right? Like everything I hold dear is messed up in a really big way. And I have to figure out how to love it with criticism. Um, And so I'm grateful because I feel like it's a great place for me to practice loving and cherishing something and being like, uh, you need to do better. You write that you are committed to resisting finding meaning in life other than the meaning that we create. But with literature, you try to drown yourself in meaning. Why not treat life more like literature? Um, I think it's okay for me to treat my own life like that. I think it's really dangerous to make meaning of other people's lives, Mm. including our partners and parents. And, um, you know, Virginia Woolf often wrote about how we're unknowable to ourselves, let alone to one another. Mm. And I think that trying too hard to make meaning of other people's actions actually erases the complexity of their actions. That's hard. Uh, I mean, don't we just do that oh, yeah. all the time? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's impossible. But, right, like, in theory, that's a chaplain's job, right, is to sit not in judgment, to have the person, to offer sanctuary to the person who's just committed the sin and is in the midst of self-loathing and yeah. say, I still love you, right? And so if this is, like, part of my commitment in chaplaincy is to be able to sit with someone – 
in their full humanity and not make a story about them, huh. but to just witness them. I but, um I have to build that capacity. But then but then that's totally the opposite of what you do with books and with literature. I mean, you're dissecting every line, every word, trying to like squeeze out every bit of meaning from those words. Yeah, because nobody gets hurt. Like if I read Bertha wrong, I am not now a bad chaplain to Bertha. Bertha mm -hmm. does not actually exist, contrary to what I would like. <laughs> um, but And what she does do is give me a way to talk to people as I'm trying to offer options of language that they can use to write the stories about themselves. Mm. Um, and so I, I think I think I should be writing story a story about myself in order to create, you know, an identity that I am proud of in the world and some sort of cohesive narrative. So my children know who is coming through the door when I walk through the door every day. and um, and I, I think that, Looking closely at literature and doing that in conversation with literature gives me a, a location to reflect on. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, I think it's dangerous when we do that to each other. The book is called Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice by Vanessa Soltel. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs>